Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. When shorts were short only concerns itself with what was actually a very narrow window in football history when teams wore, well, short shorts. The podcast will only cover football from 1954, when Umbro made their first England kit with shorter shorts, a design that was widespread within English football by the mid-50s, to 1992, when short shorts were all but finished as Umbro's baggy shorts for Tottenham's new kit, ahead of the 91 FA Cup final, quickly caught on. I'm Daniel Ruiz-Tyson. This is when shorts were short. If the shorts weren't short, we don't talk about it. This week's episode is our first two-parter, a comprehensive interview with Arsenal's 71 double-winning keeper Bob Wilson. Also, of course, for an entire generation, the presenter of what was, during his time with the show, the formidable Football Focus, the Saturday lunchtime preview show that existed within the BBC's grandstand. Bob had three hugely successful careers as the Arsenal number one of the late 60s and early 70s and as we'll hear, securing the number one shirt of his beloved North London club was far from easy. Then there was the football broadcasting career, first with the BBC and then later at the end with ITV. But he was also the man who, after seeing the Brazilian keepers training with a goalkeeping coach during the 66 World Cup, who brought that into the British game. Goalkeeping coaches and goalkeepers in this country owe a huge debt to the man whose signature save, diving headfirst at the feet of an opponent, arguably shortened his career. Still, Bob made over 300 appearances for the first team, and as you'll hear, and I don't want to irk him by not including it, another couple of hundred appearances for the reserves. But for all his success, it's also been a life topped and tailed by tragedy. In this episode, we hear about the loss of two elder brothers during the Second World War. And in next week's second episode, Bob speaks movingly about his daughter, Anna, who died aged just 31 in 1998 from cancer. The famous Willow Foundation charity was set up in Bob's daughter's memory, and there'll be links to the Willow Foundation in the show notes. This week, however, we concentrate on Bob's early life, studying at Loughborough University, almost becoming a Busby babe, playing as an amateur for Wolves' reserves during the back end of the Stan Cullis era, before finally ending up at Arsenal, where it's five years before he nails down the number one spot with a fine performance in an FA Cup fifth round replay defeat at Birmingham. This is Bob Wilson. You had several outstanding careers, the football career, the near 30-year TV career, the goalkeeper coaching career, which revolutionized the way goalkeepers are are trained in this country. In your personal life, though, right from the start, there were challenges for you and your family to overcome. You lost two older brothers, Jock and Billy, in the Second World War, who you never knew. 
both your brothers were pilots and acutely aware of just how dangerous their work was. They wrote very moving letters to your parents just in case they didn't survive. And reading those letters ahead of this interview, you can't help but be moved reading those. Did their loss give you an added determination just to succeed in life, to to make good on your dream of being a goalkeeper? Yeah, well, that's, a, you know, it's a great starting point because Jock and Billy are my heroes. I was four months old when Jock was shot down in his Spitfire, having flown it for a year and a half, and he was still 19. I mean, that's for me, it's unbelievable. And Billy it was just 20 years of age when he was shot down as a rear gunner in a Lancaster. So they were, without doubt, my two heroes. And the two letters that you refer to, Megs and myself, my wife Megs, we possess those letters. And I occasionally get them out just to reread and think, how can you be 19 years of age and write a letter to your mum and dad, thanking them for giving you 19 incredible years? And I hope they make you proud. And the same with Billy's letter. And remember, we'll always be with you. I mean, it, it, it was very difficult for me because I I would like to say I think there's a carryover because I was four months old as I say when Jock was killed I wasn't two years old when Billy was killed my mum who was an amazing lady must have cried a lot and I have a, a silly emotional streak in me maybe it's not silly but I have an emotional streak and I can only think that that comes particularly from being this little baby initially and not two years old in Billy, Billy's case hearing my mum crying and, you know, because that's what it must have been. I tried right up until the time that my mum left us and died that, you know, mum, what was it like? Tell me about it. And my dad particularly didn't never want to talk about war. Uh, he'd been in the First World War, so he'd been in the trenches. He was in the Highland Light Infantry, very Scottish. My mum and dad, I mean, you hear my accent. I did play for Scotland eventually when they changed the rule, but, you know, I mean, if I, I hear my mum now, oh, theory, it'll all turn out for the best. You know, this incredible Scottish couple. And so, you know, right from the start, I had I had to I had a, a lot to sort of when I say match, I never tried to match what Jock and Billy did because you could never achieve that. But I think there was a determination in me that when things got bad, and in my terms, they never got really bad. I'm talking about being a reserve goalie or not good enough to play for Arsenal. You know, the three years or three and a half seasons when I, I was in the reserves, I'll prove you wrong. I'm going to prove you wrong. So it's a great starting point for me. And they, they will always be my two heroes. To read those letters, to, to realise they were written by two incredibly young guys who at such a tender age found those words you'd think if it was someone in their 40s with that life experience it would make sense but for young guys to find those words in those moments you're thinking 19 20 really I, I don't think I could write a letter like that at this age Jock was just a year out of school having been the head boy at Chesterfield Grammar School you know it's just he wasn't even a year out you know he you know he went straight into the RAF and was flying the initial um, aircraft that he learnt on and then into the into the Spitfire. So, you know, it, uh, I, I still can't quite get my head round how, you know, these two brothers of mine went to war willingly and it, within their letters quite clearly said, if anything might happen, don't give up because we might be a prisoner of war. That was one thing, but really don't ever be afraid because we've had an amazing life. How can 20 years and 19 years be enough? 
you mentioned uh, Chesterfield there, and that's where you were born in late 41. It's a place that's produced quite a few well-known keepers. Is there anything behind that? Is it just a coincidence? And, and run us through some of the goalkeeping names that have uh, come out of Chesterfield. Yeah, well, you're absolutely right. It's a weird thing. I think it is. I have to say, I think in answer to what you said, I think it is coincidence. So, I, you know, if you go right back to before my era uh, and before I was a kid standing behind Ray Middleton's goal, you know, Sam Hardy was a, a Chesterfield goalie who was way, way back and an international. And then Ray Middleton famously not only was goalkeeper for Chesterfield, but became a justice of the peace sitting on the same bench in Chesterfield with my mum, who was a justice of the peace. And when he got signed by Derby, he used to pick me up and take me to watch him play at the baseball ground. Uh, so that was incredible for me. And then, and then after that, there was a, a, a terrific goalie called Ron Powell, Ronnie Powell. And then ultimately, as a kid, when I say as a kid, there were not many years between us, but as a 15-year, and you know, I'm standing behind a goal where a lad from Sheffield came with the name of Gordon Banks. And I, I mean, I, when Banksy and I used to talk about our goalkeeping, I used to say, you know, you were a bit of a flash monkey then. <laughs> and, and he would laugh and he'd say, why do you say that? I said, well, I mean, for a start, his heels touched his backside as he ran. He had this extraordinary spring. And occasionally I would think he was over spectacularizing his save and he said well you have to entertain the crowd you know Bob you have to learn to entertain the crowd and I mean it, it was amazing I used to stand behind one goal at, you know at Saltergate which was Chesterfield's ground at that time and then at half time I would go around and I would be able and not obviously in this day and age but I would be able to walk around and stand behind his goal in the second half so I was so dedicated to being a goalkeeper by that time and so Banksy was there. And then ultimately after that, John Osborne. John Osborne became a very famous goalkeeper for West Bromwich Albion and, and left this earth far too soon and everything. But so that, that, that was it. I mean, the sad thing for me is that Chesterfield Football Club never attempted to sign me. And in events since have never actually invited me to anything to do with Chesterfield Football Club which I find a little bit sad, really, you know, because I played for Chesterfield boys. I was a Chesterfield lad and, and grew up with a crooked spire, which was our famous church. Yeah, I mean, it, it's something I, I would have thought that, you know, even though I didn't play for Chesterfield, I played for Chesterfield boys, and that maybe, you know, it would have been nice to say, look, this is where I came from as well. And of course, I've forgotten one, haven't I? John Lukic who I eventually finished up coaching, but Lukey was born just about one and a half miles up the road from where I lived at 204 Ashgate Road. And so Lukey, there, there is another one who began his illustrious career, which met its peak, as everybody knows, on that amazing 89 game at Liverpool, you know, where Arsenal had to win the game by two goals to, to, be, to be champion. So, so I've forgotten Lukey within that. Your brother, Hugh, three years older, and his friends, they also played a big part in your development as a keeper. Was it a classic case of just throwing the little brother in goal? That was the only way you got to play. Yeah. And I mean, the thing was, Hugh, Hugh is, um, you know, I mean, I'm going to be 80 this year. Hugh's 82 at this moment in time. I was the youngest of the six in the family. And um, he would have his mates round or we would go out on a field and play. And, oh, you know, Bob, you can go in goal and stick two sweaters down for the goal. Um, I can never think it being anything less than eight yards by, well, he had no goalposts in 
we just put those down and then they would smash balls at me and pass me. And I would run miles to get the ball, you know, if, if they wherever it was in the field. So Hugh played a, a hugely important part. And I mean, we became very competitive. I mean, I was the younger brother, and but he was the older brother. And and believe you me, some of the whether it be cricket, whether we we were practicing, we had a back lawn that that was exactly twenty two yards long, and you know, and it would be like, I'm going to get you out. No, I'm going to get you out. And and whether it be whether it be bowling or batting or whatever. So Hugh, you know, Hugh is the only brother that is is still alive, and um, and we obviously remain incredibly close still. He was a good player himself, by the way, as a centre-half. Very good. I think there's a moment where you've just won the FA Cup in 71, if I remember oh. rightly. He's there and you're having a, a thought for him. You, you, you say, I think, in your autobiography that he had a stake in your career. Words to that effect. Yeah, I mean, that was an amazing moment. You know, we'd, we'd played it of all places on the Monday night. We went to Tottenham to become champions or be runners-up. We had to either win that game by any score or draw nil-nil. If we drew 1-1, 2-2, and this is a very good Tottenham side that finished third or fourth that season, you know, we went there and we won 1-0. And five days later, we're at Wembley. And, OK, we, you're probably going to ask me about the Steve Highway goal, but let's forget that for a moment. <laughs> that I go to my grave having to explain that to everybody, and there is an explanation. And then... Charlie hits this amazing goal past Ray Clements and we go up and we collect the cup and I'm telling Frank, slow down, Frank, slow down. I picked up the plinth, he, he got the cup and I was trying to slow him down because he'd been a loser about four times by then at Wembley. And then we're going, we've received the trophy and we're going down the other side to go on the, the pitch and suddenly a hand comes on my shoulder and unbelievably the tickets that I got for Hugh and the fab, well, Hugh in particular, was the end seat next to where you went down with the trophy. Right. And so it was, it was almost as if it was meant to be, you know, that this, this, he was the most positive part in what I became as a player. And I think within the competitive spirit as well, which I'm, I'm not always proud of the competitive spirit. It's a part of a, any professional athlete, I think, that's not a nice part or can become not a nice part. And so it was an amazing moment for him to have his hand on my shoulder and to join in that day, you know, which uh, occasionally we, we reminisce on. We'll come to the double and your time at Arsenal uh, later on in greater detail. Bert Troutman, as we mentioned earlier, was your goalkeeping idol as a kid, obviously German. That caused a few problems, I think, with your dad. And he was a big influence on your career. You finally got to meet him when you were part of the BBC's 81 FA Cup team. And it strikes me that that was a very big moment for you to, to meet your hero for the first time. What do you recall of that meeting? Well, the meeting was, you know, it was, I'd always wanted to meet him. I mean, I didn't know how I was going to meet him. You know, my, my own career, you know, had taken off and I was up on the gantry, you know, I was on television time then, as it were, and Bert was a guest for the cup final. And suddenly I, we came face to face and he actually went, oh, oh I know, <laughs> I know what you're going to say, you know, and I'm really, thank you ever so much. And it's a pleasure to meet you. I mean, it was a, it was an incredible moment for me. I immediately got my program and got him to sign it, which I still, I still possess. And, and just to go, I mean, that was the first meeting and we had another meeting 
he was the final guest on the This Is Your Life program that uh, I was the subject of. But the reason I idolized Bert, and I mean, my dad could never understand this, was that I knew very early on that whatever other failings I had within my role as a goalkeeper, which took me long enough to, to become a good kicker of the ball, to distribute it properly, to come out for crosses and things, the one thing that I did, God-given, was an ability to see a, a, an oncoming player miscontrol the ball, and then the quickest way to get there was wham, head first. And everybody knows that Bert's, you know, the whole thing about Bert Troutman is the famous broken neck in the cup final against Birmingham City. So I could absolutely do and emulate what Bert used to be the part of his. In fact, I probably did it better because I never broke my neck. But yes. I, when, when this hair eventually goes, my head's covered in scars. I mean, um, punctured lung, 12 broken ribs in all, broken arm, broken wrist, broken fingers, all courtesy of following Bert's way of doing it. But that, that's what worked for me. I mean, that's what you've got to go with. It worked for me. But I, I, you know, and it was just amazing to meet him. And I think you touched upon the fact how difficult it was because my dad fought in the First World War in the trenches and got shipped home with pleurisy, lost two sons in the Second World War. So he couldn't quite understand why his youngest son idolised a German paratrooper. And I mean, Bert's story is just extraordinary, you know, and after he'd broken that neck, for instance, his own little, his own boy, John, was killed, I think, about a week or 10 days later, run over and killed. So, I mean, it was amazing to meet him. And I, I you know, it, it's, an, it, it's extraordinary that, you know, I felt that he was a worthy, incredibly worthy idol to have. And although I probably my dad could never come to terms with that, it was it was understandable why he couldn't. In your teens, you start playing for Chesterfield Boys. You mentioned that earlier. Gordon Jeffcoat, your sportsmaster, plays a part in instilling in you an early belief that you had the talent to reach the top. Was that the first time you'd ever heard that? Yeah, without doubt. I mean, there were two there were two schoolmasters, even in the junior school, a guy called Jack Hemmings. And he used to have a go at me because I used to still be doing this diving head into feet and get kicked and cry, you know, when I was nine, 10, 11 years old. And, and I can remember Jack Hemmings, first of all, saying, come on, son, you've got to grow up fast. You know, you're OK. You know what? Nothing broken. You're fine. You know, and then Gordon Jeffcott was an incredible part. Not only did he believe that I could become a professional footballer he thought I had leadership qualities so I was captain of the cricket team the football team the Derbyshire boys and all the way through to my being selected for England schoolboys in 1957 alongside Nobby Styles and Bobby Tambling they were the two who made it with me ultimately and so Gordon Jeffcott he he, he saw the potential but you know I, I had a different background and upbringing to a lot of youngsters who would go into football. You know, my dad was the borough engineer and surveyor in Chesterfield and hugely respected and on council meetings and everything. And I was brought up and born in a house that was just absolutely beautiful house, four or five bedroom house with a huge lawn at the back. So, you know, I, I came from a, a sort of a different background. And, and of course, when Man United wanted to sign me, he wouldn't let me sign. He said, oh, son, football's not a proper job. You get a proper job, then, you know, and ultimately I went to Loughborough University, to whom I owe an enormous amount as well. But 
I got there in the end, I guess. Just before that, I think some 15 years before you make your Scotland debut, you're involved with the England under-15 team. At that point, was your national identity less clear to you? Was there a duality? Did you see yourself as an Anglo-Scot or was it simply you could only play for England because that's where you were born? That's that's it. You've got it. The latter part is the one, you know, I mean, my mum and dad's Scottish, you know, the whole family Scottish, my uncle John, Lord Provost to Perth. My great uncle was not only Lord Provost to Glasgow, he opened Hampden Park. You know, he was the chairman of Rangers in 1900. But here I am, you hear my accent now. I still have the Derbyshire accent saying Bath and Auntie rather than Bath and Auntie or whatever you, you like to be. The rules were quite clear. You could only play for the country in which you were born. And it was much to my dad's I don't know how you describe it. I mean, other than the fact that when I played at Hillsborough for England schoolboys against Scotland in 57, my dad wouldn't go. My dad wouldn't go and watch. I'm not going to see the possibility of you beating my country, son. <laughs> and uh, and, and it, it, we did. I think we won 3-0 in, in the end. And Nobby Styles was in that. I have wonderful pictures of us in the hotel before with me and Nobby together. Never, because he was a Manchester schoolboy and had knocked us Chesterfield boys out of the English schoolboys cup. But you know, I had I was English because I was born in England. That was the rules. And only in amazingly 1971 summer did when we were away, makes myself on holiday, and a, a, a Scottish guy stopped me on the beach and said, "Oh, son, you're one of us now." And I said to him, "What are you talking about?" I said, "I've got Scottish blood throughout me." He said, "Yeah, but." you can play and they changed the ruling. So if you had a Scottish mum and an English dad, you made the choice. In my case, it was a Scottish mum and a Scottish dad. And although I knew Alf Ramsey had asked, very famously had asked Bertie me one night when I was 30, he hadn't looked at my age and obviously it was the double season and everything was working for me and everything. And he asked Bertie me, is, is your goalkeeper young enough to play for the under 21s? <laughs> remember that Banksy was in goal and I was 30 at the time so I mean that remains a real laugh for me I mean Bertie Bertie fell around laughing he couldn't believe that the England manager didn't realize that I was 30 at that time not many kids turned down Manchester United now or certainly in those days and they had been keen on you were they surprised that you turned them down and how did you find Matt Busby and his assistant manager Jimmy Murphy yeah well, and there's a guy, Bert Wally. I mean, this is a this is a sad remembering. I mean, it was su such an incredible God. And the Busby Babes, I actually signed a form. You know, we had to sign a form for me to play in sort of uh, the juniors, as it were. And I mean, very famously, you've got to remember, this is when I signed was about October 57. And you've got to remember that the Munich crash was February 58. And I, on one of the occasions, I went up there to play in some little trial thing or whatever with the with the junior sides, was introduced to all those guys who went on it. And, and they, they had a scout, uh, Joe Armstrong, Bert Wally. Uh, Joe Armstrong was the one who actually believed that I could eventually make it. So he recommended me, Bert Wally. I will never, ever forget the night when we went to sign professional forms and I was outside and Bert Wally came out before my dad and mum. I, I was left outside and they were meeting Matt Busby. And he came and he got hold of me and shook me and said, never, never forget how good you can be, son. And he was shaking me. 
And I thought, what a strange thing to say to me, not realizing that my dad had gone in and said, not letting him sign, football's not a proper job. And And my dad vehemently believed that and came out and it was like, come on, we're in the car, we're going back to Chesterfield over the Pennines and everything. And if I was in the car for I don't know how many miles before I said, Dad, what, what's going on? And he said, I've said no. I've said no. And I mean, Bert Wally lost his life in, in the crash. And yeah, I, I mean, I, I, I had this, I, I'll never, ever forget hearing about the crash and, and then hearing that Duncan Edwards had survived, survived for 15 days. You know, and then the connection that I had, because to me, they were the only professional side. The Busby Babes wanted me, and I was obviously in turmoil as a kid. Come on, Dad, you know, I don't want another job. I don't want to go in the police force, because within the family, that been his his brother had been a policeman. And so there was, going. am I going to go into the Met Police? And then ultimately, we made the decision that I was going to go to Loughborough to become a school teacher. So I did physical education and history. And and that I will forever and a day be glad that he took that route because it led me into eventually being able to write my own scripts and being well-educated. I mean, that is, it's the best university in the country to me. <laughs> that was one of my questions, whether studying at Loughborough helped you, not necessarily in your football career, but in the career after football, in, in, in television, that you were ready to go into that world because of your three years at Loughborough. Yeah, I mean, there's no question of that. I mean, it was an extraordinary three years. Um, I say to everybody whenever I've given and presented degrees and things, you know, this is, remember this, because the friends you make here will be the friends for your life. This is, these are the real friends that you will make for the rest of your life. I mean, the, the impact of Loughborough on me, um, I never stopped writing. Um, you know, I wrote, I know you, you obviously have read, you know, the, the autobiography, you know, I wrote every word of that, and when I used to send it to Roddy Bloomfield, the editor. It was longhand, and then Megs would typing out my wife, and then he'd come back. He said, he'd just say the same words, keep writing, keep writing, keep writing. And even now, I love to, you know, put words together on the charitable side. You have to do a lot of speeches and everything. Um, I'm always concerned about the emotional part that's in my body. but And I, I think the BBC saw that, because when I was a player, they started, David Coleman was really my mentor. It was David Coleman who saw the possibility that Bob Wilson could not only be a pundit, because, you know, the first two years, you know, you sit there as a player, you know everything about the game, you're at the top of your game, and you're just being asked to comment on it, and they pay you some money for doing it. And it was like, wow, this is, this is great. And then suddenly out of the blue, they realized, or they took Sam Leach and all those, Coleman particularly, David was amazing for me. He said, look, he could present. And Cliff Morgan had been, I think, the first rugby player to present. You know, I mean, even Jimmy Hill hadn't presented when I started presenting. Jim was still a pundit with Brian Moore on ITV before he came over to do Match of the Day with me at the BBC. So it was a, it was a huge, huge gamble on their part. And the salary didn't, you know, didn't represent what Gary's doing now because they £5,250. And I could get little bonus works if I did some specialist videotape uh, recordings on, say, Bobby Moore or something, and I'd get an extra £30 on top of that. So, I mean, it was a huge gamble on their part, but to a degree, it was a, it was a gamble on my part. 
but certainly very quickly from day one of my going there, Alan Hart, the amazing editor of Grandstand said, okay, there's the running order for tomorrow's football focus, Bob. I'll see you later in the day, bring it. And I had to sit down on that first day and write the script. And I took it and he took a pen and he went like a headmaster, but no, 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 now go back. Well, why not? They didn't tell me that at that time you couldn't instantly press a button like we're doing in today's media, for instance, when a player was injured and wasn't playing, as an example. So I would write, you know, and and today Manchester United, you know, they're going to be without Norbert Styles or Nobby Styles, you know, injured, you know. No, no, you've got to have the name right up the top because that enables a person with the photograph to press a button to get it up. And you always got the name of the individual, the manager, the player, the whatever, right at the front of the sentence. You know, so that's a simple example of learning how in those days, you know, I had to learn, I mean, and it was a nightmare, you know, the first, the first presentation. And even though I'd got, I'd be relaxed when I was the pundit, I'm talking about, you know, this is different. And I will never forget Frank Boff on the first day, wishing me luck. And then suddenly saying to me, now, listen, Bob, I just need to tell you one thing. This is Frank Boff, the great late Frank Boff. And I said, what's that, Frank? He said, well, look at the screen now, because you're on the screen. As I am on with you now, you know, yeah. have a look at it. Now, he said, you're doing your script. You're, you're, you're not reading it. There was no autocue at that time. So I had to, you know, memorize the script or whatever. He said, but where is the movement in the screen? So if you're like that, there's no movement. So occasionally, pull your ear, scratch your nose, get your hands into the picture, be expressive. I mean, he was the master of that, obviously, along with Des and Steve Ryder and these guys. But I mean, that the first day, it was like a block of wood. You know, I sat there, I was terrified. Uh, and he just said, look, find a pen, get a pencil, bring it into the vision. So you, you know, you get more animated. I mean, that's, it was just learning on your feet and I mean, all I can say is I survived for 28 years, which I thank those guys forever and a day for, for being such good teachers. Whilst at Loughborough College, you're still very much keeping the football dream alive. And uh, that Loughborough College team goes on to be possibly the finest amateur team of that early 60s period. You count a memorable win over amateur giants, I think Bishop Auckland in the FA Amateur Cup. You're also in the running to feature in the Olympics, Great Britain side at one point, but a chest injury puts pay to that. You end up in hospital. What can you tell us about that? Well, it was it was in one of the uh, amateur amateur cup games that I did my famous Bert Troutman straight on down, but obviously didn't go with a head first because you know the next thing I knew I had several broken ribs and a punctured lung. Um, so. That was a dramatic sort of stop to my football career at that time, even though Wolves were um, on the hunt for me uh, and Stan Cullis and Wolves, because we played Wolves reserves. And although we'd got beaten, you know, I'd, I'd, I'd obviously had to have a, a really good game to keep the score down. So, you know, that 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 particular amateur cup run was very impressive for a university side that had never I think it was the quarterfinals. And and, you know, we played Hitchin and then the injury came in that game against Hitchin. And it was me risking all. It was 50-50. There was no blame, you know, with the guy who who connected. And that's, you know, I lived with that throughout my career. You know, I would have played a lot more first team games, I guess, ultimately. I certainly missed virtually the whole of the 71-72 season. 
you know, no, 72-73 season, you know, I missed the cup final in 72 because I got carried off in the in the semi-final, but that, that wasn't ribs, that was that was a knee. If you play the way I played and Bert played, you run a risk. I was going to ask you later on, but I may as well now, it fits in nicely with what you're talking about. When I think back to, say, the very brave players of my childhood, Andy Gray, Brian Robson, there was always a question mark about them in terms of they were too brave for their own good. They missed so many games. Were you the goalkeeping equivalent of those two? Because all your injuries that I've read about, none of them were Bob Wilson misses one game, Bob Wilson misses two games. I mean, you're out for stretches. There are all manner of broken bones. And it's all down to that courageous, too courageous style, isn't it? A very unique style. Certainly now it's not a style that you see, but even then perhaps... No, it's an absolute rarity in the modern game to see a goalkeeper dive headfirst. They'll stay on the feet. Big Pat Jennings, my great friend, became the first one to to say, "I'm not going to risk all here. I'm going to." But he was, you know, huge hands, and it worked for Pat. What you've got to remember is my style worked for me. If I try to play like Pat Jennings, not a hope in hell of of ever playing like that. So you know, the, the, you go with it. I mean, even now I get so cross when I get introduced at events. Well, in in my sort of after dinner speaking or charity work or everything, you know, I get introduced as Bob Wilson, three hundred and ten appearances for Arsenal, and I get so mad because I played five hundred and thirty six times in an Arsenal shirt, three hundred and ten in the first team, and the rest in the stiffs, which is the reserve side. So the early part of my Arsenal career was pretty well a nightmare because they thought I, I was what I was, an amateur school teacher. But, it, you know, I still played 536 games with that gun on my chest proudly. Still to come on When Shorts Were Short. His absolute honesty, his absolute dedication in your face. Don was never scared to be in your face. You know, Bertie was more of a gentleman and an officer, but with Don, he would be straight into you, you know. Thank you for downloading When Shorts Were Short. You might be interested in supporting the show's Patreon page. Supporters will get each new episode a fortnight early, as well as bonus episodes exclusive to patrons. Show your support for the podcast at patreon.com forward slash shorts were short your support for the podcast is appreciated if the shorts weren't short we don't talk about it when you turn up at the club around i think 62 or 63 there's a complication in your in terms of the association with wolves and wolves are making it tough for you to to commit yourself to Arsenal. How was that resolved? Well, the bottom line of that was that I only ever signed an amateur form that enabled me to play in Wolves reserves or in whatever team, you know, when I was not at the university. But I was at the university, so I was still an amateur player. And then when I was playing for British universities, the physio was a man called Bertie Mee who was the physio at Arsenal at the time, who became my Arsenal 70-71 manager and whatnot. And he went to Billy Wright and evidently said, he told me, we've got this bit of a nutter in goals. <laughs> you know, he, he puts his head on the line. And I think 
you know, we should try and sign him. He's on amateur forms at Wolves, whatever. And it was as simple as that. I, I skipped off university one day, drove down in my 50-pound Ford Prefect that I had at the time. And I turned up at Highbury and I walked out on the pitch with Billy Wright and thought, this isn't a football ground. This is like some former cathedral. It was so Art Deco. It was just extraordinary from the marble halls right the way through. I fell in love with Arsenal through the ground, through everything that it represented, its history, Herbert Chapman. And that remained and will remain to my final day. And so... I had no doubt, you know, and there was, in my mind, there wasn't even an issue. But as soon as it came up, you know, Wolves contested it and said, no, he's on our books. No, no, I'm amateur. So that we, my dad was prepared to go to court with the Football League about that. And it got all very nasty and everything. And then Arsenal being Arsenal, which I hope they will continue to be in their way. They said, okay, Wolves, you know, he's coming to us anyway. So what do you want? And very famously, they paid this record (laughs) first time ever fee for an amateur player, which was, I think, 6,750 or 7,000 pounds. So they got a good deal in the end, (laughs) even though it took a while to come. That, That was nasty. And it got very nasty with the Football League and a particular individual, the secretary there, who everybody will probably remember anyway. But, uh, you know, it's it's not worth my calling him out because they got it wrong and I went to the club that I wanted to go to. And you turn up at the club that you wanted to go to, who had at the time gone 10 years without winning a trophy. Almost unthinkable for the Arsenal of that time. I mean, we've seen it more in recent times, but at that time it's forgotten that from 53 to 70 was a very barren period for the club. Were Arsenal still regarded as a big club at that time or were they regarded as a sleeping giant? Well, I think yeah, I think both things really. I mean, the big club they they were all from the time that they won three titles and the bounce, you know, in the Herbert Chapman era, although he died before the third one, right the way through. But you're talking, you know, the, the last trophy has been in fifty-two or fifty-three cup final until our lot came along. But as a club, it, it, you know, it, it was it will always, I think, always be their third. You know, if you look now, you're looking at Liverpool and Man United with the most amount of trophies. Third in that is Arsenal Football Club. You know, and you say about winning it, then, I mean, we won a trophy a year ago. You know, so that's not bad. I mean, there are a lot of football clubs out there would give anything to, to have won a trophy in the last year, 18 months, two years or whatever. Uh, obviously, the greatest era was this era under Arsene when Arsene arrived and everything way beyond even, I think, the Chapman era. I think the answer there is I'm actually biased. So Arsenal Football Club, without Arsenal Football Club, there would be no Bob Wilson, as the, as the public have got to know Bob Wilson. I owe my job at the BBC, ultimately, to being Bob Wilson, Arsenal goalkeeper, during f- finishing first to second for six seasons running, including the second double of that century. I owe, you know, that that chance on television to, first of all, um, be a pundit, as it were, and then to be a presenter to Arsenal Football Club. And that remains to this day. I owe I owe the club so much. And yeah, I mean, to be one of the 32 players that are on the outside of the new stadium is extraordinary for me, you know, and to be linking arms. The guy I link arms with on the on the around the stadium at the Emirates is, of all people, Dennis Bergkamp who I'd stick at the top of my list of most favourite ever Arsenal players. I have a fear that when they come to have another Thierry Henry, they'll say, who should we get up there? (laughs) 
with tape of Wilson off, you know? <laughs> Hopefully it won't come to that. I find this this next bit, well, fascinating really, because you don't have a goalkeeping coach at Arsenal. That's the era there are no goalkeeping coaches. But Alex Forbes, an old midfielder with what you describe as a good understanding of angles, he takes a special interest in you. He starts giving you very specific training. What did that do for your game? And once Alex Forbes left the club, what happened to your training? How did you fill that gap? Yeah, that's a really, really good question because, you know, when I arrived, they stuck me in the side uh, in my first season as I was teaching all that year. And they had a major problem. Jack McClelland was injured. Ian McKechnie, they thought, was overweight. They had a young kid, Tony Burns, coming through. So they put me in. And I played nine games in the first team, which we only lost one at Chelsea. But anyway, by then the player said, look, we don't see him. He doesn't train with us. He trains on a Monday and a, a Thursday night, which I did alongside a young kid called Charlie George and a young kid called Pat Rice, but another thing. And so the players really got me kicked out and they signed Jim Fennell. But Alex was incredible. He saw something within me, a determination, a bloody mindedness, whatever an anger at times, you know, this which I don't like within me, but it is there. It's a competitive spirit. And he had these amazing ways of having me face the goal. I took this into my own goalkeeping coaching, ultimately. And I would be facing the goal and he would be somewhere on the 18-yard area or inside. And he'd shout, turn. And I would then have to very quickly adapt to how far can I go to him? Where's my near post? Where's my far post? Where am I in position to the goal? Wham. And then he'd strike the ball and, and I would attempt to save it. Uh, and and he, he was the, the first one who really made me think deeply about how you needed specialist goalkeeping coaches. And, and just to take it on from there, in the double season, I mean, I used, we used to finish training. They used to stick me in goal at the end of the, the running and all that side of our, of our training. And then I used to face, I remember one, one day, Bertie Mee said, you know, you're facing your 200th shot at goal today. You know, I mean, it was crazy, but, you know, and, and get beaten by God knows how many. Not good for your confidence. And so I used to say to, to Don Howe, who was extraordinary as a coach, one of the great coaches, Don, will you give me an extra half an hour, 45 minutes, whatever you can give me, you know, on my handling, whether I'm catching away from my body, whether I'm catching into my body, whether I'm catching like this. And he was, he was, Don, Don was just a star and he wasn't a goalkeeping coach, but he understood what I was getting at. And that carried over to when I, I saw Brazil training for the 66 World Cup. And I saw that they had a, a guy who had once been a goalie coaching the goalies and so it was like wow that's what the game needs and uh and so it very quickly from then on I took my badges and and um and specialized well it had obviously it was you had to you didn't have a specialized goalkeeping coach at that time you had to get the FA coaching badge and um the full badge and the provisional badge and so it it went from there and then I was already setting up my goalkeeping schools and thinking you know, of what I needed to do when Terry Neal, who I'd played with at Arsenal and had become manager, said, Willow, I hear you're doing a bit of goalkeeping here. Would you be the first goalkeeping coach? Effectively, would I be the first goalkeeping coach? And that I did for 28 years, of which 25 of them were just as an honorary coach. I never got paid in the 25 years. I mean, I never got paid during all those triumphs and everything because there were no goalkeeping coaches. And it took it took just Arsene Wenger at the end who said, do you not get paid? Bob, I do not understand. You do not get paid. 
I said, well, it doesn't matter, Arsene, you know, by then my salary was a little bit better than the five grand that I got at the Beeb when I was on to ITV and what have you. Yeah, I, I did get paid a certain, a small amount of money for the last three years, four years, maybe of my coaching at Arsenal. And, and, and I'm delighted. I mean, all the goalkeeping coaches I see and have seen since have always said, listen, thanks, Bob. You know, we've got a job now, very well paid jobs in the modern game. Every, every top club has a minimum two, if not three, goalkeeping coaches on the staff. Even in the last 25 years, goalkeeping has changed probably more than any other position. I don't know if you remember going back to Euro 96, the German goalkeeper, Andreas Kopka. He used to parry everything. And I'd never seen that before. And I know that the Continentals, their keepers would tend to punch the ball out with both fists. British keepers were one fist. But I'd never seen anyone just parry shots that you'd expect British keepers to catch. But that style, that's now the goalkeeping style that's established everywhere. In your time coming into the game, the early 60s through to the mid 70s, were the changes, the evolution of goalkeepers in that period as marked as they have been in the last 25 years? Or was it a slower process? Oh, no. I mean, without any doubt, catch, 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 catch. And you've got to remember that we didn't have you know, the gloves that they have nowadays, two or three hundred pound gloves and everything. We had our bare hands if it was a dry ground with a bit of spit on them or a bit of chewing gum. Or you had the Gordon Banks, Peter Bonetti, the five shilling green gloves, which were in wet conditions, useless. But they gave you a little bit of protection. And I mean, the real the real change has come. It's, it's about the game. It's the usual thing about bums on seats with crowds. And how do you get bums on seats? How do we take this game forward? And in our time, you know, the ball was quite a big, heavy ball, quite thick leather. If you cut into, into a, if you saw them, you know, we had a lace at one time before they went just to the blow up point. And nowadays, the ball is a joke. And why is it a joke? Because they want bums on seats. They want more goals. They want spectacular reaction. So the modern ball now, whether you are David Beckham and you can do a Beckham bender, as we've seen many times, and manipulate the ball, nowadays, if you can strike a ball with power, if I'm in goal now and it's struck straight at me from here, somewhere, if it's hit with real velocity, the ball will go up, down, right or left. And you ain't got a clue what's going to happen till it's en route. And that consequently is the reason that there is so much parrying and not you daren't. I mean, it's a case of depending on the pace of the ball, you have got to go for safety first. And so often you find them parrying it and parrying it straight out to, to the opposition. I'm not saying that we never parried the ball, you know, if we were at full stretch or whatever and paid the penalty, but that's the real reason. And the modern ball, if you cut into it, it's just so paper thin. It's just, it's a nightmare for goalkeepers. It's great for the fans because you know, you see balls set out outside the, the line of the post and it's gone and then it comes back in. And it's just, it is so, so, so different in, in almost every respect goalkeeping, apart from the fact that it's still 192 square feet, eight yards by eight feet. Your relationship with the then Arsenal manager, Billy Wright, was uh, up and down. A number of former players from that time have said that Billy Wright was simply too nice to be a manager. Um, he's eventually sacked in 1966 after I think Arsenal finished 14th, their worst season since 1930. 
Bertie Mee, as you mentioned earlier, he steps up. Not the first time that Arsenal have made a physio their manager, as you mentioned in your book. Yeah. I think Tom Whitaker, uh, yeah. 20 years earlier, uh, yeah. made the same move. How much credit can Billy Wright take in regards to the team that emerges in the late 60s, early 70s? Absolutely. What a great question. He never gets the credit. A, he was a, a, a great guy. On the day I skipped off university, by the way, I turned up at the ground. Bertie Mee's taken me onto the pitch. Billy Wright happened to be 100 yards away and came all the way over to say hello. I mean, a charming, charming man, obviously married to one of the Beverly sisters, you know, which, which was a big attraction to, to everybody at Arsenal when they turned up and everything. You know, that, that season, I mean, I wasn't in that side. I was the amateur school teacher trying to just get through my years teaching and then become a professional and and get to where I thought I maybe could become. I don't think Billy ever really, he was so thrilled when I eventually made it. I mean, you know, I obviously did make it eventually, but my God, what a journey. We're talking about the season that he was sacked was the season that I actually played the last 13 or 20 games or whatever. In fact, you know, we had a real, you know, there was one awful occasion when we played I played in a reserve game and and, uh, and then he dropped me from the reserves the next day. And I, I said, I'm off. I'm going. And and he had all the staff around, which really upset me. It wasn't face to face. It was a whole staff. And I would have thrown something, I know, because I have this temper or whatever you call it. And I went and I got my boots throughout the boot room. And one of the people who he had in the room was a guy called Alf Fields. And when I got to the marble hall to go out and never to return, I mean, this I know it sounds dramatic, but I'd had enough. I was not going to make it. I was going to go back to Loughborough as a lecturer or I was going to go back into teaching or whatever. And I, I got my boots and I walked and waiting in the hall was Alf Fields. And there was a little seat in the hall of the marble hall as you went in the entrance. And he said, Bob, you're going to come and sit here a minute. And without Alf Fields, I think I would have gone. I think I would have applied for jobs and gone. And he said, listen, you do something that I've never seen any other goalie do. And he just, it was just, which was a dive, head on dive. You know, I mean, Bert did it, but not many did it. Uh, and it, and I did it naturally and Bert did it naturally. And, you know, it was, it, you, you play to your strengths. And he said, look, you know, you can make it. Do not do this, you know. Remember your family. And I actually wrote to Alan Wade, who'd been the coach at Loughborough to me, and he was by then head of the coaching at FA. And he said, stop feeling sorry for yourself. You've actually got a young family now. Get on with it. And he, he, he was a help as well. But it was Alf Fields who convinced me that there was a part of my game that could, if the other parts were added to it, could suddenly be worth investing in, as it, as it were. And so it was It was thanks to, to Alf particularly and to Alan Wade who made me think about what I had then, a young, well, young baby, as it were, and, you know, think about that rather than throwing all this up. You will make it. They believed in me. And, and I know Billy. I mean, it was, I know Billy was so thrilled when, when we went on. And, and I know this is going on a little bit, but you know what? The young kids that he brought in at that time they weren't immediately in the side, but they were brought in by Les Shannon, Billy's number one, and Billy himself. And you're talking about, you know, kids like John Radford, Ray Kennedy, Charlie George, Eddie Kelly, Pat Rice, uh, Sammy Nelson, you know. And, and just as Arsenal are at this moment, 
that then when they when they dared when Bertie and when they suddenly decided to to mix the old boys with the young ones became suddenly wow you know this can work you can have youngsters you know if you're good enough you play them you look at Bakayo Saka now and you look at George Best in my day and it was like you know Bestie was just extraordinary and he was just a kid when he when he began you know, it was sad. It was sad that Billy Wright, who'd played 105 times for England, captained England, was sacked. But that that is and will always be the manager's game, you know. There's another change at Arsenal in that Dave Sexton leaves to take the manager's job at Chelsea in 67. Don Howe, you've spoken highly of him earlier in this interview. He arrives. He's a brilliant coach. He's had a brilliant playing career, but he's initially given a hard time by some of the players. How did he win them over? His absolute honesty, his absolute dedication in your face. Don was never scared to be in your face. You know, Bertie was more of a gentleman and an officer. But with Don, he would be straight into you, you know. And I mean, Dave was, was a wonderful coach and, and everybody loved. And it was, it was sort of, a, it was, I can remember how shattering it was. You know, when we heard that he was going and everybody went into, oh, my goodness, what are we going to do? And Don stepped up and became not only a great coach for Arsenal, but obviously alongside Bobby Robson for England. And one of the great, truly great coaches, I believe, not just because I was part of his on the way to him being manager at West Brom, which sadly, you know, he left us at the end of the double season. But it, it was because he was prepared it was the honesty. You know, you've got to be honesty. You cannot cheat. You cannot cheat in any way, whether you're a player or a coach. You know, I mean, there are coaches who I have known who, who, who arrived at Arsenal and got in and said, you know, you lot won the double, but, you know, you ain't won anything and you've, you've dropped off your game. And uh, I mean, that's a particular meeting I remember where Bob McNabb allowed this certain coach who arrived and, and stood up and said, I'm out. Yeah. You won't get a more honest squad of players here than this lot, you know? And he stood up and, and Nabbers left the room. And we all went, do you know what? He's right here. You can't come in on your first day and slag everybody off who, you know, finished finished twice at Wembley in the League Cup finals, won a European trophy and won the double. And then and then gone back to Wembley and, and lost it. You know, you can't do this. And uh, yeah, I mean, that was that was an interesting time. Don Howe also switches the system to a zonal marking one rather than man-to-man marking. I think Frank McClintock is switched to the centre of defence. And by 67-68, you're breaking through as Arsenal's undisputed number one. I think it's an FA Cup replay against Birmingham that Arsenal lose, but Bob Wilson is finally established. Why did it happen for you at that time? I don't know. I really don't know. I mean, the irony was the manager of Birmingham City was one Stan Cullis, the guy who had signed me at Wolverhampton Wanderers. And I mean, we lost that game, but I was okay. And I I think, again, forever and a day, I will praise Bertie for sticking with me for the rest of that season. And then I only learned this later. Frank McClintock tried to get Peter Shilton to come, or Banksy. I think probably Banksy, sorry. It would be it would be Banksy, yeah. Uh, and I never knew this until many years later, which is good. And we kicked off the next season at Tottenham at White Hart Lane. And I had an absolute blinder, you know, nobody was going to, we were going to win the game because of me. And 
I think only eight weeks later, all thoughts of signing another goalkeeper had gone out the window. And I was, I was like, God, I can really live with these guys, you know, it's going to work. And from then on, it just, it just grew and grew and grew. And obviously being that older player, I felt it had an influence in the dressing room as well, alongside Frank. We, we were obviously during the double year, Frank was 31, 30, 31 or 32, and I was 30. So we were the two elder members. But I mean, he was he was extraordinary in his leadership, but he did need backup because he out of the gorbles and whatnot, Frank McClintock could lose the plot, but he could also inspire you as well. That was Bob Wilson. In part two next week, we look at Bob's Arsenal playing career in full and the rule change that allowed him to play for his beloved Scotland, the country of his parents' birth. We also look at his TV breakthrough with Football Focus and his work as a goalkeeping coach. As always, please do rate and review when shorts were short on Apple Podcasts, even if that's not the podcast provider you use for subscribing. Apple Podcasts remains the best way for any show to grow thank you all as always for listening the podcast can be followed on both twitter and instagram at shorts were short and facebook.com forward slash shorts were short if you want to drop the show an email you can get me shorts were short at 1607westegg.com all my work is at danielruiztizen.com the podcast can be supported at patreon.com forward slash shorts were short sign up for your season ticket there lots of content on the way Thank you for your time. The artwork is by Tom Hadfield. The music is 80 synth pop by Toto Cyberspace. I've been Daniel Ruiz-Tyson. This has been When Shorts Were Short. If the shorts weren't short, we don't talk about it.